Our scripture reading tonight is 1 Samuel 3. 1 Samuel 3. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 3 at this time. We're continuing as we have been. We took a little break during Mission Emphasis Week, but in our read-through of the Bible as a church called The Story. And you can catch up or, or get on board with that at any time if you just go to our website and check it out, or you can talk to Pastor Mike or me, but Pastor Mike is more on the ball with what's going on with that. But that's where we're at. And 1 Samuel 3 is one of the chapters of our reading for this coming week. And I have a confession to make, and Pastor Mike said this was okay. He didn't say it was okay to say it. He said it was okay to me. But we've been reading as a family, uh, we're reading it in a, in a picture children's Bible because we have a four-year-old, and uh, that's been more helpful. But we've sometimes been ending up the before the Sunday. So we actually read the portion this past week, and he said that's okay. So if you want to do it that way, you can. Um, for most of you, it's going to come up this week, but we read uh, in, the, in the picture Bible, in the story Bible, this, this text, 1 Samuel 3, we read it this past week. And uh, it really struck me, and it always has, since I was very young, I remember this passage. It's very unique and very special. And um, I've looked at it and seen it, I believe, in a new light that I want to share with you tonight in the context of our read through the Bible. So I'm excited about tonight and uh, God's word and what God uh, has laid on my heart to share with you. So this is First Samuel 3, and we're reading the whole chapter, okay? Before we read, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for... Uh, uh, giving us Jesus by grace, alone, through faith, and for the joy that he brings us, the joy that, that we have as your people. And now the joy that we have to listen to your very words, and we know that your words are full of love and grace, and uh, we ask, Lord, that we would listen. In your name we pray, amen. 1 Samuel 3, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Now in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, he was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli, said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And now get this, the Lord came and stood there. Can you imagine that? The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, 
for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. That's God's word for us this evening. So this is quite something, something else that happened in Samuel's bedroom one night, isn't it? Samuel had been serving the Lord in the tabernacle per his mother's vow, his mother was Hannah, per his mother's vow to the Lord out of thanks for God giving her a son. We read about that back in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. In chapter 2, we read that Hannah made a little robe for her son and brought it to him every year as he grew up. It's a very, very sweet picture. I I can just picture that little robe. Now, in chapter 3, Samuel, we think, was about 12 years old. And we think Eli, the priest, was about 90. He could barely see, we read, and no doubt because of his age, because he could barely see, he needed a lot of help. So when Samuel heard a voice calling in the night, it made sense that he thought it was Eli who needed some help with something. As we read, by the third time Samuel was called, they realized it was the Lord himself calling Samuel. The fourth time, verse 10, the Lord came and stood there, and I don't know what that was like. I don't there's not much, we're not given much to speculate on, except it says it very clearly. The Lord came and stood there. And then God spoke, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered. I believe that this is a key chapter at a very key point in biblical history. The Bible is the history of salvation. Each piece, each chapter is a scene in that grand picture. We've been seeing that in this series, the story, week by week. Each scene points us to God's salvation in Jesus. And it's been great to see that as we've gone through this together. And even for your own personal study of the Bible and your devotions, it's very helpful to know when you open it up, 
in each text you read, wherever it is, you ask, what is God saying to me about himself, about his salvation, and all the great blessings of his salvation? And what is God saying about the Savior, Jesus? One helpful way to get to enter into the Bible and then get at that big picture as you step down into the different parts is to see the story, the story of salvation, in three big parts. Now, there's lots of ways you can divide it up. They're already divided up, obviously, in books. There are 66 books in the Bible. There's all these chapters. But another way to do it that I want to share with you that you might find helpful is to see the Bible in three big parts. And there's a lot of people who look at it like this. Kind of like a trilogy, if that helps. Three epochs. Epochs is a fancy word for age. Three time periods. Episode one, a lot of people call the Mosaic period. And that actually reaches a bit beyond Moses through Ruth, where we were uh, just last Sunday night. So Genesis through Ruth, the Mosaic period. The third period episode is the New Testament. And right here, we're at the very beginning of episode two. Episode two is the period of the prophets and the kings. And it covers, when you go into your Bible, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, all of those books of the prophets. And even it includes Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Those were written during this time. And the kings will reign and the prophets will prophesy and preach until the exile. That's the fall of the kingdom of Israel. And that will take us to the end of the Old Testament. So at the dawn of this new age in the history of salvation, and as the kingdom of Israel is about to rise, we're going to see the kings being anointed very soon, this passage points us to the kingdom of God. It points us ahead to the kingdom of God that Jesus would usher in and would talk about a whole lot in the Gospels, in the New Testament, when he walked on this earth. And he calls us to enter into the kingdom of his Father. He calls us to be kingdom citizens the Lord calls us to bow to Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This text gives us some great insights into what God's kingdom is all about. I believe we've got three kingdom values, three kingdom insights. First of all, we're given and we find Starting out this period of the kings and the prophets, we're given the kingdom principle. The kingdom principle. And it is that God works in weakness. God works in weakness. He works in unexpected ways. His values are often, God's values are often upside down from the world's to immediately at the beginning of the point apply it directly to our lives this is another way we could put it. The kingdom principle is weakness. A way to think about this as we talk about it and to think about your own heart and life, it means this, practically speaking, when I am weak, then I am strong. 
We see this principle here, the principle of God working in weakness. Of all people and of all things, God comes and speaks in this time when he rarely spoke to a boy, Samuel, maybe 12 years old, a kid in middle school. And he was with Samuel, and he was going to use Samuel in a mighty way in his kingdom. Someone that the world would not think of or would not notice. Someone who had no standing in that culture. Not even an adult who was kind of on the fringes, but a kid. That's who God comes to and is going to work in a special way through. Totally unexpected. We see this principle of God working through weakness or the least of these again and again and again in the Bible. Samuel, a number of chapters later, would eventually anoint David to be king. And he would be the second king of Israel. God would pick out David, the least of his brothers, the last one, the shepherd boy, the one who his father didn't even think to introduce to the prophet Samuel. Samuel would anoint him, of all people, to be the next king. By contrast, people that were using worldly values, non-kingdom of God values, they would, in a few chapters, select Saul to be the first king of Israel because he was handsome, because he was a head taller than everyone else, because he looked kingly. But he turned out to be a complete failure in God's eyes. God does not look at outward appearances, but he looks at the heart. That's a a related truth to this in the Bible. This same kingdom principle was evident and played itself out when Jesus came to earth in that episode 3 in the history of salvation in the Bible. People were looking for a worldly leader, a strong leader, a fighter, a warrior, but Jesus came as a humble servant. Very, very different. He would ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, not on a war horse, but on a donkey of all things. When you're talking about the kingdom of God, don't apply outward appearances. Don't apply worldly values because you'll make a big mistake if you try to apply them. The fact is God works wonders in weakness. Even thinking about the church in this world, don't necessarily be looking for flash and numbers and money. God's values are different from the world's. They're different. That's a great comfort to you and to me because it means God can use you and he can use me for his purpose to do great things. People just like us. He can use people like you and me to advance the kingdom, to share the good news, to be a part of the restoration process like Pastor Mike was talking about this morning. He can use someone who is struggling with great suffering and even pain for his purposes. He can use someone who doesn't feel like much, who feels very unworthy in her or his life. He can use someone who doesn't feel like they have much to offer or they don't feel like they're very talented. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that God's strength is made perfect 
in strength and your greatness. No, it's made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. The biggest of things, revivals, renewal, can start in very small ways with, worldly speaking, very small people. Great things can start with even one faithful child committed to hearing the Lord's voice and responding. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Great things can start with just one person praying. Great things can start with just one person in a small way responding to God's call to serve a particular person in a particular way. Second, this text gives us the kingdom priority. The kingdom principle, and we also have the kingdom priority, and that's the word of God and listening to it. Samuel hears God's voice, and he responds. God's word is really a key word in this chapter. Did you notice that as we read through it? We read in verse 1 that the word of God was rare in those times. Verse 3 says something kind of interesting. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, that's referring to something that's going on in the, in the tabernacle, in, in the worship. Uh, but it, it certainly makes you think of Psalm 119, which says that God's word is a lamp to our feet. So what we're being shown is the word of God was rare, but the lamp of God had not yet gone out. He wasn't gone. And we're being told and we're being shown that God's word would shine out and shine forth again. And that's true. We see it in the rest of the chapter. And that's true throughout the Bible. At key points in biblical history, we see in the Bible, and that's before God's written word was completed, right? At key points throughout the history of redemption, God's word came in very special ways. Sometimes, like this, directly spoken by God. And we see that God's word comes in a very special way now, and it makes sense when you think about the whole picture of the Bible. This is the start of a new, exciting era, the era of the kings and the prophets and the kingdom of Israel. Now, what did God say here? What did God say we read that it would make their ears tingle, and you kind of think, oh, maybe something nice, and, you know, that kind of sounds nice, but we learn really quickly that that's meant in a bad way because it's a word of judgment. It's a word of judgment. This is a word against the spiritual state of things, and, and we, don't, we don't like to focus on passages like that. We don't like to talk about that. God is love, right? But... That's, that's what we've got. That's what we've got here. Why is that, though? That's what's important. Why is that? Well, we read here, and you learn more in chapter 2 if you go back. We read about the family of Eli, the high priest, and his sons especially. His sons, we learn in the previous chapter and later, were called Hophni and Phinehas. And chapter 2 tells us that they were very wicked men. They were wicked men. They lived wicked lives. And if Eli was 90, I mean, you kind of think about them, maybe they were in their 
20s or something. But if Eli was 90, they very easily could have been 50 or 60s. They're not necessarily uh, very young men. And, and you think about that, that, they, that God is very angry with them and that they were wicked. And you wonder, you know, what were Hophni and Phinehas thinking? to live lives like that, even without us knowing all the details. They were wicked men. What were they thinking? Did Hophni and Phinehas think that the God of the universe would just look the other way? Did they think that they could openly reject God and live evil lives without consequences? They seemed to have thought that. And Psalm 28 says that's a very typical viewpoint of the godless. For some reason, these guys think that the very one who created their eyes, that he can't see them and their deeds. Very foolish, especially for them. They grew up in a believing home. They worked in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was at the heart of Israel's worship. They were called to lead the way in teaching God's word, in warning people to not live like those around them, to live as children of God, as children of light. Eli and his household, what about Eli and all this? Well, we can't pretend to know exactly what all went on in that household. We can't get, know all the details of what kind of parent Eli was, but something went wrong. Verse 13 says it pretty straight out. Eli failed to restrain his sons. And somehow here, Eli failed. God says it. It's not me speculating. The fact was that as high priest, even more as the father of these men, the Bible seems to be saying he should have fought against their wickedness. That was his responsibility. And we get the impression that somewhere along the way, he failed himself. He failed his boys. He failed God. He failed God's people in being lax in his duties. It's a strong indictment against Eli and his sons. This particular word of God is about the fact that there are consequences for ignoring him. There are consequences for not obeying him. God is a patient and loving God. God was patient for a long time, but his patience was at an end. This is what this young boy He's got to take all this in. It's enough for us to hear this. It's very sobering. He's like 12 years old. He gets this message. I mean, that's something else. Eli does not run to Eli. To, yeah, Samuel does not run to Eli with this message, does he? He doesn't wake him up in the middle of the night for this. Verse 15, he waits until morning. Even in the morning, he doesn't dare tell Eli. We read that he starts doing his regular morning duties. He opens the doors of the house of the Lord. You know, sort of maybe hoping he doesn't bump into Eli. 
He's scared. He knows that God punishes the wicked. Samuel's mother, Hannah, no doubt, did teach him about God and his ways and the importance of following him. We get a picture, by the way, of the mother of Samuel, Hannah's heart in Hannah's song in chapter 2. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. Kind of reminds you of Mary's song. You can check that out sometime if you want to. We get a picture of her heart for the Lord in chapter 2 in that song. So Samuel tells Eli everything in verse 18. He doesn't leave anything out. We read Eli's response. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Now, what we can't tell here is whether this response was, this could have been just more spiritual laziness on Eli's part, if you think about it, right? Or, you know, he could have just been, you know, all right, you know. Or, I mean, it's possible it could have come out of a real faith and trust in God, but we've seen that he's been spiritually lazy and lax. It could have been that. I'm not sure we know. We don't really know Samuel, Eli's heart here. But the punishment we do know and the judgment would happen in the upcoming chapters. But we're not there yet in 1 Samuel 3. And we see as we continue in 1 Samuel 3 that while God's word comes here and brings a warning and correction, and God's word always does that when it's needed, God's word also always brings hope too. Because as we read on, we find that a new time is dawning. We read that the Lord was with Samuel. Samuel let none of God's words that had been ignored by some others, he let none of God's words fall to the ground. He became a prophet, and God revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Someone, thank the Lord, began taking his word seriously and was bringing it to the people. God's word would be such a kingdom priority going forward in this epoch, episode two, that you know every single king from here on out would be judged on whether or not he kept the word of the Lord. That's how important this listening to God's word is and would be. The kingdom priority today remains listening for God's voice in our lives. And his voice comes especially through his written word. And God's word is always double-edged. The word brings us warning and calls us to him. And it brings hope and blessing when we do follow him. There's always grace. There's always opportunity for repentance. Often, like here, those two things, responding to God's word and ignoring it, happen side by side. And that's going to go on for a little while. We see spiritual renewal with Samuel and his positive response. And at the same time, we see spiritual degeneration with the sons of Eli. And that's, that's what happens today, too, that happens side by side. That's how it's going to be until Jesus returns. There's evil in the world. There's even backsliding in the church. But there are also many who are following God's word and living for him and listening for his voice. 
And God's word cuts through it all. God's word continues to sound forth. God's word continues to shine. And we're called to respond. We're called to listen. Ask yourself, am I listening to God's word, God's voice in my life today? Maybe for you, you've been listening to too many competing voices lately in your life. Whether it's on TV or on the radio or voices in your head troubling you. But what is God saying? That's the kingdom priority for kingdom citizens like you and me. One more kingdom value in our text, and it's the kingdom posture, the kingdom posture, and that is servanthood. We find it here. We find it onward in biblical history, and it's the call to be a servant. It's the posture of Samuel. He says it straight up. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. That's what the leaders of God's people, the kings, were called to be servants of the Most High, though most failed at that. Most of them were not so different from the guy Nebuchadnezzar we talked about last week, who, as king of Babylon, he, he, he tended to put himself first. And even the kings of Israel tended to do that instead of serving under the sovereign God. As we move on in episode two of biblical history, instead of these kings leading the way following God's word as faithful servants, they started leading the people to destruction and a desertion of God's word and a letting go of his ways. In the fullness of time, the scripture calls it, in that last epoch of the history of redemption, Jesus, the Son of God, came, and he lived to be the only ever perfect and faithful servant. One of our confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, says that he is the perfect prophet, priest, and king that we need, succeeding where all others before him and all of us after have failed. Because of the finished work of his death on the cross and his resurrection to life, because of his faithfulness, we can be servants today, you and me, of the Most High God. Because of him, you and I today can live like Samuel, letting none of God's words fall to the ground. We make mistakes. We don't do it perfectly, but God forgives. God makes our own weakness strength in him. None of God's words fall to the ground. What, is that? what could that mean in our lives? I think it means, that, it means that we can listen to his words. We can take those words in. We can live them out. So we're, we're, taking them, we're not letting them fall down. Our words and our actions can have purpose and meaning and power and strength and do great things, not in ourselves, not in our own greatness, but because of Jesus Christ, the faithful servant.
God called Samuel through his word. And he calls you and me today, too, through his word to serve him in every area of our lives. Will you say also in your quiet hour when Jesus calls your name, will you say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. I pray that you do. Whatever your age is, you could be younger than Samuel, but you say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You could be as old as Eli, say it. I pray that you do, that you will. And then with the help of God and with the help of his people, and that's the genius and the power of the church, with the help of God and with the help of his people, you can start on the great adventure of exploring all of what that might mean in your day-to-day lives, in your day-to-day living as citizens, not of this world, first of all, but as citizens of the kingdom of God and of his son, Jesus.